0: Hello, friends, family, and, and other people who listen to the podcast. And you're listening to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the podcast that delves into the forgotten and otherwise you know, discarded, usually not appropriately discarded films of Rotten Tomatoes. We're going to talk about some horror films today. It's me, Matt Monagle. I'm one half of your mats. I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co host, um, the Laurel to My Hardy, the I can't think of any other famous toes. It's Matt Donato.
1: But you had one example. That's literally all you had, just one. <laughs>
0: When I panic, I just say Laurel and Hardy. It's a thing.
1: I'll be the tales to your Sonic. That's fine.
0: Oh, yeah, I watched that movie and like that movie, so it's yeah. okay.
1: Relevance. SEO terms.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, and we are now ranking for Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> uh, the people to the Finders are going to be super disappointed. So mad. So this week, uh, we're going to talk about a film, and it's, I feel like this happens a lot. We're going to talk about a Fantastic Fest film, um, and that's probably kudos to the to the uh, programmers at fantastic fest and wag of the finger to the distributors here because a lot of these movies get played at fantastic fest and then never really get distributed in the united states in ways that people can easily access them we'll talk about that in a bit uh but matt we have another great guest this week uh who picked this movie especially for us so i'm gonna let you do the introductions
1: yeah it seems like a recurring theme that we just keep having guests matt it's like we have this plan oh yeah Anyway, like thing. <laughs> yes, with us this week, we have my very good friend. Uh, she writes for sites such as Slashfilm, Fangoria, Vulture, and is just kind of a pinnacle for horror writing on the interwebs. You've seen her writing many places, and her name is Kaylin Corrigan. Kaylin, thank you for joining us today.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Very pleasure. Thank you for driving half an hour over here <laughs> in, <laughs> in LA, which I know is not fun.
2: Well...
0: Yeah, that is a real testament to the podcast. You guys have to listen to this whole episode because an hour in L.A. traffic.
2: See, now the guilt is laid upon you, and you have to devote yourself because I devoted myself to L.A. traffic.
0: You're in this far. I like the guests that immediately start by badgering the people that are (laughs) listening. Those are always my favorite guests.
2: I think it's going to go well from here on out.
1: (laughs) It can't get much worse. (laughs) It can't get worse than what we've done already. So, yes, of course, it's only going to get better from here.
0: You guys haven't even taken the shot yet. So, uh, Kaylin, I want to start by asking you, as we do all of our guests, a little bit about your history in the horror genre. Because I think I've followed you on Twitter for like years and years and I've seen your stuff, um, but you're not super duper active on Twitter. So I don't feel like I-, I know you as well as some of the other film critics. So, talk about kind of like how you got into the genre. Was it as a kid? Was it as a teenager? When did you and horror sort of connect?
2: Yeah, I guess. I just had, like, a very strange, very stressful uh, first couple years, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, like, my dad was always really sick, so I spent, like, a lot of time in the hospital when I was really young, and then he eventually uh, passed away when I was 11, and it was after, like, a string of a lot of very stressful surgeries, you know, um, like, a heart transplant and pancreas transplant and uh, having, like, his... Toes amputated from infection because he had uh, juvenile diabetes and it weakens your immune system and then it just kind of like attacks your whole body. But it was just such a weird experience and it was something that like I didn't really know how to relate to anybody around me, especially like growing up in a place like Plano, Texas where everything is very traditional and conservative and there's not like a ton of people that might be able to relate to this really random circumstance And I kind of came to horror, like, to feel, I guess, I don't know, I guess in some ways it made me feel, like, less alone. There was these filmmakers that were making these really outlandish and wild movies, and um, I guess some of the times it seems like maybe they themselves were wrestling with some sort of demons that they were working through on screen, and not that you have to have, like, trauma to be a horror filmmaker or to enjoy horror films. I think anybody can enjoy horror films on their own terms, but... It was something that I guess made me feel a little bit less alone in the, the middle of Plano, Texas, dealing with these really strange uh, and weird circumstances, and also just the thought of like how cathartic horror films can be. I watched a lot of uh, like horror uh, heroes, I guess, and like Final Girls and what have you that would go through these really traumatic experiences and. Uh, these such tragedy and come out on the other side and maybe not come out unscathed, but come out regardless of what they had been through. And like the, the survival of it was something that was very cathartic for me watching that.
1: Yeah. I think the horror genre is very good at, you know, depicting these heroes that as you just said, they don't always come out peachy keen and, you know, clean and the horror genre allows for the nastiness to happen But that's also real life. And it's like one of those genres that just understands that it just understands the fact that, like, there's no Hollywood ending to quote Anna in the apocalypse, like, literally, like, you're seeing something on screen in most of these films that is not like reality. And oddly enough, the horror genre is one of the genres that just understands that most, given the fact that it's about such maybe out of bounds and ridiculous things.
0: I was going to ask, talking about the connection you had both to the themes of the films and sort of the the filmmakers themselves, the people that were working through stuff, um, when did you start to feel like you had a sense of community as well? When did you feel like you were building out a connection of like-minded
2: film fans, either in person or digitally? Yeah, I think that happened when I was in college because it kind of took me a while to catch up with myself, I guess. It was something that I, I looked back on and started to notice a pattern like oh yeah, I'm that person that it's Valentine's Day and I say to my friends, well, why don't we go see my bloody Valentine 3D in theaters or it's St. Patrick's Day and I'm the one in the friend group saying, well, why don't we go to the haunted house over here that's St. Patrick's themed? (laughs) And then when I was in college, like my boyfriend at the time was like, you know, you really like horror movies. And I was like, oh, you're right, I do, don't I? I was like, yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna dive deeper into that and like actively seek out horror films. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And I was like, all right, yeah. And I just like got very immersed in the, the horror community and seeking out specific directors that I really delight that I really uh, wa- liked watching and then turning to social media I guess as a way to find more people that were like me because again I was still living in Texas at the time so I knew a few people around me that liked horror movies but maybe weren't quite as like obsessive about it as I was so it was uh, it was something that, I actually would find friends on Twitter that we could talk about horror movies and then after I moved out to California actually befriended some of those people in real life and now we'd like hang out and watch movies all the time
1: Yeah that took me until like after college like I, I got <laughs> through high school and college of people just looking at me going like why do you watch these terrible things you know my parents 100% not understanding my friends in high school not understanding and even in college when I started to have my own as you said before like you know you have your own personal discovery first that was college and I still never met my core group until like after college so like it's always funny to hear everyone else's experiences and mine being like such like a late bloomer I realize how long it took for me to actually get into horror versus most other people in like our circles and stuff like that.
2: Totally yeah because I didn't have those parents that were really into horror movies growing up like my dad was Pretty into movies, but we weren't super close. And just because he was going through so much all the time, uh, it was hard for us to be close. And um, but he definitely like showed me like West Side Story and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I remember that, and that was cool. But it, it, he and my mom weren't really like cinephiles as much. My dad liked to read a lot. He liked to read a lot of Stephen King, but. Um, yeah, horror movies were something that I, I had to kind of come to on my own and, and work through on my own until I found everything that I was looking for.
0: So kind of, I, one of the things I find interesting when I talk to people about horror, I feel like the movies that get you into the genre are formative, right? But they, over time, you kind of rebuild your own canon. Like You, you parse through everything that you've ever seen, and you're like, oh, these were really the movies that meant something to me. So kind of looking at it through that lens... What were what were some of those films for you? What would you you know if you, if somebody if you were doing one of those Twitter things where you're like oh what five horror movies would you know would you have to know to get me like what are those titles for you?
2: Hmm, I guess I'm very into witches and period pieces and honestly good wallpaper. Like your movie can be not spectacular, <laughs> but if you've got some great wallpaper in a spooky house, it's I'm kind of halfway there. I'll, I'll meet you halfway. So I, I think the five horror movies to get to know me, it
0: can, it can be three or two. It can just be yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to make you do five.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like definitely the witch, um, by Robert Eggers. Cause that, not only is a film that I think was executed so beautifully, and I, I love Robert Eggers' as filmmaker so much. He really speaks to me and his dedication to detail, like the fact that everybody on The Witch had their clothes hand-sewn because that's how it would have been done during the time period. It just gives it this level of authenticity that I really appreciate. And it's like a witch movie that I was wanting for so long. I really wanted somebody to make that movie. And then it was like he came along and was like, here you go, Kalen.
1: So he made that for you. Essentially. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. He told me. Just checking.
2: <laughs> gave me a little heads up. He called me. But yeah, the witch and I have to say Wicker Man, you know, very much along the same same vibes. Uh, so obviously, like I love Midsomar. I wouldn't say you need to see Midsomar to get to know me, but that I, I do like it because I'm so into the Wicker Man and, and that kind of like pagan folklore horror
0: And just just for the record, uh, which version of the Wicker Man? Because I know people will wonder. Oh, the Cage version, obviously, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's it's, of course. I I just want
1: to see Cage in a bear costume punching women in the face. That's exactly what I'm going for.
0: (laughs) That's the moment that we need right now. (laughs) Yeah, of course. More more of that. More of
2: that, please. That would definitely solve things. (laughs) Yeah, no, the the original Wicker Man with Christopher Lee, my dude. Um, Yeah. In fact, I would say I, I have to put horror of Dracula on there because Christopher Lee is my Dracula. I have every movie that he was ever in as Dracula at my house. I've even like written an article arguing why he's the best Dracula for birth, movies, death. Uh, he just has this this air of importance when he walks into a room and I, I, I really dig it. He's a total boss. <laughs> so when
1: Robert Eggers makes his for Nosferatu, that's going to be your favorite movie ever, I'm right? I'm going to freak okay. out. I'll yeah, probably okay. just, I'm just spontaneously making, combust. Just checking on that. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and I think also taxi driver. That's definitely my, I know it's not technically a horror film, but it's
0: so it's inf- really more of elevated, elevated horror. I think is what we would describe it as today. <laughs> oh, I'm going to no.
2: cancel
1: this podcast just because of that. <laughs> Sorry. I got to take a shot. I did it. Yep. Yep. Drinking Gameco.
2: Oh no. (laughs) No, but it definitely like speaks to the kind of horror that I like that, that deep dive on a character and just someone slowly unraveling over the course of a film and just a ticking time bomb and, uh, just morphing into something that is less human and more monster. Uh, so, you know, like old boy, uh, I love just watching people disintegrate. So yeah, there's a couple of films. Yeah.
1: yeah I, think, I think that I was going to say the minute Matt asked that question, I immediately in my head thought of the witch and like, I knew your, your whole type already. Like, so yeah, you, you wear it well, especially in tattoo form as well.
2: <laughs> yes. I have a little goat. <laughs> yeah, I like that. He's very spooky. moist, spooky. <laughs> yeah. He's just a happy little standing goat. Yeah.
1: Happy little grinning, satanic goat, <laughs> you know, as, as most goats are. We've
0: got goats and we've got pizzas. We've got interesting tattoos on the other side of this line.
1: Absolutely. We're, we're representing. Where's yours, Monagle?
0: I, I can't decide. That's a whole other thing. I've gone through so many versions. <laughs> you can't, you, it's, you, it's might be my first tattoo. I can't just do like whatever the random is at Fantastic Fest. I mean. That feels like a cop out. Again,
1: pizza, ta- pizza scream face was my first tattoo, Matt. You could do it. <laughs>
0: uh we we already have enough trouble separating ourselves this is true that's that's right i'm the i'm the bad boy matt with the tattoo that's how we have to (laughs) do
1: this
0: (laughs) i guess that makes me like the put together older brother you're the dad all right oh yeah i'm fine with that um i i'm curious too as you're uh, i'm gonna go right into more questions because i'm done with you matt um kaylin is you're finding stuff now and i know that you write about a lot of different horror films at like every different level of the genre, big budget, low budget, super independent, you know, where do you find yourself going to for recommendations? Like, Where is stuff coming to you that's getting you the most excited? Is it the festival scene? Is it relationships with programmers? Like where, where are you tapping into stuff?
2: Yeah, the festival scene is very helpful. I love Fantastic Fest so much because I feel like there's so many films there that I haven't seen anywhere else or I wouldn't have ever come to if it wasn't just a random screening that I signed up for not knowing anything about the movie and just walking into while I was at the festival and I found so many gems that way like Borgman is a film that I don't know if I would have ever seen if I had not been a fantastic fest and just said sure I don't know what this is but I'll give it a go and now I think it's terrific and uh, very creepy and in a weird way, I almost want to recommend it to people who dig Parasite, because I think there's some similar things at work there. But uh, yeah, aside from festivals, I guess there's just like a list of set filmmakers in my mind that if their name comes up and it says they're working on something, like Robert Eggers or Ari Aster mm-hmm. or Ben Wheatley, Mike Flanagan, Carrie Fukunaga, uh, Karen Kusama, Jeremy Salnier, you know, Brian De Palma, obviously... Then I will just be like, oh yes, I will watch this. Like it doesn't matter what the trailer looks like, you know. Like whatever Jennifer Kent's next movie is gonna be, I'm gonna be there because I know that that's a filmmaker that I trust their style, and I'm very interested in the stories that they have to tell. So that's that's something that I usually look out for. And I don't know if he has it anymore, but for a while Ben Wheatley, I found like a secret little Tumblr page where he would just like post little ideas that he had and things. I don't know if too many people found out and he got rid of it because I haven't been able to find it lately. Really? But sometimes if you dig, you can find like little things that filmmakers make on the side.
1: I love Wheatley and I had no idea about that. And like, is it still existing in its old form, or he just doesn't post on it?
2: I haven't. I was looking for it the other day, and I was like, it's not here. I don't know if he just, like... Because sometimes he'll just up and delete everything on his Instagram, I've yeah. noticed. So, I mean,
1: smart, again. Yeah, because like,
2: he's probably like, oh, I should hide my ideas. Oh, I but, would
1: love to just get into every little nook and cranny of his brain if he was posting it somewhere. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm actually pissed I didn't see that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was, like, some random name. It was, like, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and then I just, like, found it one day when I was on a rabbit hole in Tumblr, and I was like, wait a second, this looks like pictures from the set of in a field in england like what what's going on here and then i realized it was like him that's and insane yeah
0: wasn't he supposed to be working on like there was a mutant underground mutant like soldiers versus monsters movie that that he was allegedly in production on for a while and i don't know that don't was remember, teased
1: that. years ago wasn't it that was yeah amazing. that was like two
0: three years ago at this
1: point yeah i uh, i don't know if that's ever gonna happen I, I mean i'm all here for him doing his own version of the descent or whatever but like i don't think we're ever gonna get that
2: that would be nice. That's
1: bad. I would love to see it. What he's doing the next like Tomb Raider or something, right? He's isn't
2: he He's doing uh, Rebecca right now. Oh he's doing Rebecca Yes, he's d- doing uh, Rebecca right I now. I think he just finished filming yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So the, the remake of Hitchcock's Rebecca, which I love Ben really so much, but that is like maybe my favorite Hitchcock film. And I just, you know, good luck. Like I don't know who could outdo that. <laughs> the
1: bar to meet <laughs> is already up here. <laughs> Sir, you must jump that. <laughs> and not even Olympic pole vaulters can do that.
2: Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, I, I I never want to judge a movie until it's out. But I was just like, oh, really? You, you picked that one. Oh, OK. <laughs> that
1: is certainly a stretch. OK.
0: <laughs> well, I think we've talked about Fantastic Fest a lot. Um, so I sort of feel like that's a natural segue into today's film. So, Donato, are you ready to start talking about Rattle of the Cage?
1: I am. I just finished watching it, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes ago. So Good. fresh in my mind. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so we're going to throw away
0: for just a second, and when we come back, it's all about Rattle the Cage. a 2016 did I get that right 2015 2015 um, film out of the United Arab Emirates which is billed was billed when it was released as the first thriller slash mystery horror type movie uh, to be released by that as a country so the name of the film is rattle the cage it is directed uh, by Majid Ansari and it stars two very famous in Palestine two very famous Palestinian actors Ali Suleiman and Sali Bakra, Bakri, sorry, Bakri. And it's uh, kind of, uh, it was described in the original Fantastic Fest program as a throwback to early 90s small town thrillers, stuff like you know Red Rock West, um, I think I butchered that name. But it, it is a film about a, a drifter who ends up in a small town. Um, he gets in a brawl with somebody at a local bar and is thrown in jail overnight. And while he is in jail, um, the kind of local constable, the bumbling police officer, is murdered by somebody pretending to be another police officer who has a nefarious plan involving that police station and the main character as a prisoner that doesn't really come to light until the end of the film. And much of this is really a back and forth between the main character who never leaves his prison and the police officer. Uh, The original Fantastic Fest program described the two of them and this is just to give you a flavor of what you're missing, Uh, the main guy is a Uh, Well, kind of a little bit of an Eric Roberts type and the bad guy is a bit of a Dennis Hopper type. And if those two names do anything for you, this is a film that you definitely want to check out. So Rattle Cage is now available on Netflix, but it did hit our criteria. It did have five or less reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So we get to talk about it today. And first and foremost, I want to ask Kalen, this was your pick. This was your recommendation. How did you encounter this film? Like, was it at Fantastic Fest?
2: It was, yeah. It was just one of those random, like, Tuesday morning screenings that they're like, hey, this movie is playing, and it's the first genre film to come out of the United Arab Emirates, and anybody who wants to come see it, I mean, I I was looking around for what to see, and I thought that was an interesting uh, point, because I... Thought about it, and I was like, Yeah, that's true. I've never seen any other genre films come out of there, and I feel like I've, I've seen so many films from so many different countries now going to places like Fantastic Fest and Beyond Fest and Fantasia. And uh, so I wanted to check it out, and I'd, I'd heard a few good things as well. And I went and saw it, and I was just kind of blown away. I was like, This is a first time filmmaker coming out of a part of the world where not a lot of genre films have even been released, not even a lot of films at that point had been released. And he just made something that was so confident and exciting and intense. And I just really wanted to see it take off and like explode and have like a million screenings across America and everybody fall in love with it. And I was like a little sad when, when that didn't happen. And I'm, not, I'm still kind of trying to figure out why that didn't happen. So, But we can get into that in a little bit. That way. is the
1: point of this podcast, almost. Yeah. <laughs> that is the last thing we always end <laughs> on. Why? Why did this not happen? And the answer is always usually distribution, word of mouth, stuff like that. But yeah, agreed. I mean, the Fantastic Fest morning slots are always such a, not crapshoot, just like a random assembly of all the films that just don't really have a place. So I, I, I like the fact that you can just take that early morning, 11 a.m. slot, look at it, and be like, all right, here's five films. I have no idea what they're f- about. I have no idea where they're from, and these titles mean nothing to me. So yes, let's just pick one. I found a lot the same way you found Rattle Cage. I think that's how I found like, Shrew's Nest and stuff like that. So it is and that does happen to be a very good way of finding new films.
0: Yeah, I want to ask both of you, because Kaylin, you mentioned this just a second ago. The film when it came out it was very much like, Hey, we're the first UAE horror or thriller um, to be released. And to me, when I saw that, that was a, a huge selling point. And I've been trying I've been thinking about it for the last couple of days. Like, what is it about horror as a genre? What is it about us as horror fans? We, I feel like because film itself is a broad thing. And like a lot of countries will release movies. They'll have their own film industry, you know, whether it's small or big, it doesn't matter, but you can usually pinpoint that first horror film, usually as a national cinema is kind of like spinning up its gears, it's going to be a bit or a minute before it gets around to making a horror film. So I'm kind of curious, like, what is that hook? Like, why do we, why do we, the three of us and everyone else get so excited when you read something and it's like, this is Cuba's first horror film, or this is Vietnam's first horror film. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm into this.
2: Yeah, I think It's a few things. I think it's partially that the horror community is a pretty open and welcoming community. And I think we're always just excited to have more people join our little community. So when we see that somebody from another part of the world that that maybe that kid grew up feeling like there wasn't a lot of horror fans around him or her, and then they made their own horror film, and then they came and joined us, and we all were happy together celebrating this little weird genre that we love. And also just like... I'm always excited to explore new films from other countries, especially because I don't get to travel as much as I would like to, because traveling is very expensive. I hope to one day travel to all the countries around the world. But in the meantime, I feel like movies can kind of be a way for me to experience other cultures and learn about other parts of the world that I don't know as much about. And because I already know that I like horror movies, if there's something coming out of like, Japan or South Korea or Berlin and it's a horror film, it's kind of like a two-for-two a for, two for me. It's like, oh, I can watch something that I'm probably going to like because I like the genre already, and then I can also like learn a little bit more about this country while I'm watching it.
1: Yeah, I think for me it's the culture thing too because specifically you know, we, we watch a lot of American horror, obviously, because we live in America, and every country falls into its types, and every country... You know, we have the verse, James Wan's movies going on right now, and that has kind of dictated how horror has went stateside. But then you get somewhere like the United Arab Emirates, um, something Israel, Cuba, you know, like one of the dead coming from Cuba and big bad wolves from Israel. And you get these things that are very unique to the region and very unique to the voices of these filmmakers that are so different from what we're used to. And for me, that gets exciting because, you know, for all of us, we're watching a lot of movies. We're watching whatever comes out, usually in the horror genre, and we're trying to keep up. And when you get that variety and that differential, um, like, ability to differentiate, that is just exciting to me. So, yeah, I'm always looking for international features to, as Kaylin said, I don't get to travel that much, open up their culture, open up their, like, borders to us. And cinema is a good way to do that. And especially spooky cinema because it's fun. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I've always had a pet theory, and I, I've seen this voiced in other places too, but for me, I feel like watching international horror is more rewarding a lot of the time because, because I'm not necessarily focusing on the dialogue because it's words on a screen. I really get to spend more time looking at the physicality of the performances. I get to spend more time you know, noticing filmic elements, cinematography in ways that I wouldn't necessarily because I'm listening so intently to what's being said. It kind of like, it, it emphasizes the visual De-emphasizes the audio a little bit, obviously not a lot, um, but that just puts me in the right space for horror, which ten- tends to be a very visual genre. It's like the perfect—it's like the perfect mishmash of you know focusing and providing what I want in terms of horror movies, and it makes something like Rattle the Cage, which has so many big things going on in it, just the right movie for me. Like I, if you released this film, everything else but all the lines were in English, I think I'd have a harder time enjoying it because. So much of this movie, I was spent just watching the performance, watching, you know, Ali Suleiman's like larger than life cop role or watching the camera as it moves around and and does all these wide swoops and stuff. It just engages me so much more visually because I have to read. I have to look in a way that I don't necessarily have to with American horror.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that because I do feel like in a lot of ways us horror fans, whether or not we mean to we're a little bit more accepting of certain performances in foreign films like if it's an Italian giallo or if it's something like an Asian horror film we're more accepting of maybe behaviors that we wouldn't necessarily recognize in ourselves but we're like, oh, well it's okay because it's an Italian giallo film like I expected them to go big and you know wild with their reactions to things. But if we see it in an American horror film, we think, "Well, I wouldn't do that. So that doesn't make sense." So it's it's right. it's a little bit more appealing sometimes to watch something from another country and just kind of like let those walls down and just let the movie breathe.
1: Yeah, we can take that step back further than we usually can from a movie where you know, we're always taking a step back from a film and watching it from afar, but from international, especially, it's not something we see every day. It's not something we know and yeah, I think there is more of an acceptance to like okay, I, I can buy this because I don't know 100% myself.
0: And reading um, reading some of the interviews with uh, Majid Ansari, the the director, and it's funny because on paper um, for a certain type of film, a lot of the touch points that he was referencing might seem a little, you know, like overdone or exhausting at this point because he was talking about who influenced him as a filmmaker growing up and he named you know, two famous South Korean directors, Park Chan-wook and Bong Joon-ho. He named Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and he, you know, which to, to me that implies a lot of like genre fluidity. It implies a lot of um, kind of blend of humor and seriousness that's definitely present in this film. And I was like, if you just took those elements and again, had it localized, it made everything else familiar to me. I think I would focus more on what I didn't like, but because this film introduces so much about culture and so much about family in, in ways that I'm not used to thinking of as an American, I, it really allowed me to kind of, enjoy those kind of bigger, broader moments, the way that he plays with genre, like a dance number in the middle of the film. All of those things were just so interesting to me in a way they might not have been if somebody here was like, "Eh, I'm doing Robert Rodriguez. I'm like, well, we already have a Robert Rodriguez. Thanks for, and I don't like him that much anyway, so thanks for playing.
1: (laughs) We don't need another one of those. But I mean, it's so funny that you say that too, because obviously one of the things I've written down in my notes is, oh, my God, this guy loves Tarantino and Rodriguez. Like, that, I literally had that written down before you even said that he was mentioning it in interviews. So it really translates on the screen. And it's also funny just to see how much American filmmakers influenced other people. And, like, it picks up on all these different nationalities. And it's fun to see their take on it because exactly what you just said, so many American directors over and over again – do the sequence you know this was a reservoir dogs tag that you're saying before um the dance number in the jail in uh, rattle the cage Mm -hmm. it's straight from reservoir dogs it's straight awesome and it works because we're hearing different music from a different place and we're seeing different characters from a different place doing it where i've seen that same beat in how many other american films and you're kind of like all right, so you're just trying here to do the same thing. Like, just even a movie like Troop Zero, which is about Girl Scouts and, like, a good girl gang flick doing, like, a Reservoir Dogs thing. And I'm like, all right, I'm getting a little tired of this. And, yeah, I watch Rattle of Cage, and I can see the Tarantino-ness of the character design and the eccentric uh, details of it and the dance number and go, oh, but I like the way he's doing it. It's such a funny thing to think about, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I could, I could also see him as somebody who was growing up somewhere where there's not a lot of filmmakers to look to looking at Rob, right. Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino and saying, well, they did it. Like they, they didn't come from big money. They just, you know, made little scripts when they could wrote scripts and, and made movies and got their own crew together and they made it happen. And maybe I can make it happen.
1: The, the renegades, the outcasts, that's, that's what translates overseas yeah. or anywhere really. Not even, yeah.
0: There's, there's so much in the visuals that i want to talk about with this so i actually i wanted to distill it down to just that opening shot because i think i think it's one of these films where if you if you watch the opening shot and you're like here for this you're gonna have a great time the movie basically lets you know kind of like pulls up its sleeve and lets you see its heart in the first 30 seconds as they do this long prolonged pan or um you know pan back from the uh from his eye when he's in the jail cell and it pulls through the keyhole and it pulls across the desk and across the furniture and circles around and lands on the keys of the jailer as he's walking into the to the jail cell it, it's it's so flashy and it's so the antithesis of what i think of as um you know like low end in, indie horror kind of things i think of a lot of like you know if your camera has to move it's more expensive so you're probably not going to do that so talk to me about the the visuals of the films and use kind of that that opening scene as a as a jump off point
2: Yeah, I like how much the camera moves in this movie because I feel like, especially at the time that this movie came out in around 2015, we were seeing a lot of very slow burn, long establishing shots, long takes of characters being pensive and reflective, and then maybe like a big bang at the end. Um, I think that might have been a result of Ty West being so popular. Films like House Mm. of the Devil um, being so influential in the way that indie filmmakers were making their films. And then here comes this guy that's like, no, I'm not going to leave my camera on a tripod in the corner. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to dance with it. I'm going to, you know, it's going to do big swoops and it's it's going to spin in the air. It's going to follow a character around and do a close-up shot and then pull away into a bird's eye view. And uh, it was it was really refreshing for me to, to see somebody be so confident and so, alive with his movie and I think it, it really adds to the intensity and the electricity of the film and it really helps with the fact that it's all set in one location.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I want to jump on that real quick if you don't mind, Donato. Yeah. Go. I, I think one one of the things to that point too is that I really like about it is, you know, yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot of like static camera, but we've also seen increasingly over the last few years, like everybody's like, you're you know, you're gonna do a one take, I'm gonna do a one take. You think that's a one take? Fuck you, this is a one take. Or like they have these extended scenes that play out all in one shot. And it's sort of like, you know, a filmmaker flexing their muscles and showing like, look at me and look what I can do. And there are some pretty long takes in this film, but it's never about like, look at this take, like look at how long we're able to do this. It's more about movement and it's more about dance, honestly. Um, it's, It's about playing with the space. It's about showing objects in motion. And I never got, as I was watching these scenes unfold, I never felt like I was watching somebody just leaving the camera on to show how long they can leave the camera on. It was all about like, You know, enjoying the space, playing with the space, playing with the mentality and the mindset of these characters, and it's a very different approach to long takes than I think I'd I'd seen in a while. Used to be a lot more of that, but in horror, particularly in genre stuff, I don't feel like I've seen this approach um, a lot over the last few years.
1: Yeah, and I mean, again, I think Kalen said this already, but it helps make the jail cell seem that much bigger because this is a single location film; it's all set in. I guess it's like a precinct and jail cell, but again, we're talking about one in the uh, Arab Emirates, so it's not a very, very high-tech one, we'll say. It's basically just some walls and some bars. But even the shot, there's another long take that goes right along the lines with the introductory one where our hero, or we'll call him basically our prisoner that is trapped in the jail cell, he looks up and he sees the smoke alarm. And there's a very easy way to tell... He realizes he, if he can trigger the smoke alarm, then the sprinkler system will go off and blah, blah, blah. Like, hopefully something will come from it. And you could easily do a shot where he looks at the smoke alarm, and then he looks at the sprinkler somewhere farther away, and that's it. You've now conveyed what we need to know, and that's fine. But the camera goes up through the smoke alarm, past all the wiring, past the microchips and stuff like that that make it work, and then tracks all the way through the pipeline to the sprinkler and comes out the sprinkler faucet. And it's just such an uh, intriguing and interesting way of getting from point A to point B, but escaping the room itself that we've now been in for however many minutes at that point. You know, we're halfway through the film at that point and we know the surroundings and it's a way to introduce more landscape and in a way that we wouldn't think of in that kind of scenario.
2: Yeah, because it's a very basic premise. It's just a recovering alcoholic wakes up in a jail cell. A guy comes in, shoots the sheriff, says he's the cop and just plays mind games with our prisoner from that point out and that's something that could get very dull very quickly just one location one man holding another man in a jail cell for 90 minutes and I think with the lesser filmmaker it might have come across a little bit more drab but it's actually very taut and intense the entire way through and I I do think the camera movements help with that
1: yeah because again how many times have we seen a character study in indie horror that's between two characters just talking the whole time and it goes nowhere you know it does nothing and you sit there going okay you I understand you tried something for the low budget you've done what you had to do but not every filmmaker has that same kind of eye and what rattle the cage does phenomenally well as we have just said is tell a story through visuals and also the characters and everything in one. It, it feels like a cohesive film where all the fundamental parts of it are working together beyond the way it should. So you, you
0: mentioned performances and actors. Can we talk about Ali Suleiman as uh, as Devon? Um, because the show is basically his.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I love his uh, Jim Carrey and Cable Guy vibes, just oh like gosh. this very dark Comedian that's just come to mess with people, like not even necessarily has a plan, not even necessarily wants to kill you, just really wants to make life unpleasant for you in a very fun way for him for as long as he has you in his grasp.
1: So, the performance of Mr. Crazy Cop, who's not really a cop, who I love very dearly, is the most Tarantino shit I've seen in a long time. And I mean that in a very, very good way. Because the way that the film pens a psychopath, it doesn't stop. Like I feel like every single scene, it gets worse and worse somehow. In the way that even little dialogue beats work, where you have, mm-hmm. Debon, I guess is am I pronouncing that correctly? Okay. So the way okay. that Debon is just talking to Talal, and the way he's saying things that are so menacing when he's not even talking to Talal and saying things like, there's one sequence where another deputy comes in. And Talal knows this guy's probably going to kill this other deputy if he does anything wrong, or he probably will anyway, and he doesn't really know. And the way that uh, Devon is just talking to him like, oh, you know, you have a wife and kids at home, right? Like, oh, that's a really nice shotgun in the back of your car. Can we go look at it? And it's, it's such a great way of making a scene more threatening and menacing by not doing anything out of the normal. It's yeah. just little dialogue beats, and that is so well done by, by um, Mr. Ali Suleiman. And also the way that he just loses himself in some scenes, like when he jumps on the cage and he's just perched on it like a monkey in a zoo, and he's just staring through to, uh, Talal. He's staring right through him. It's some really great character work. It's some top top notch character work. Honestly, I was not expecting this from anyone in the film, and the way that he gets that kind of man, I, you know, go back to Tarantino and he, the way he gets those little Michael Madsen kind of quirks in his prime. Amazing. I, and I feel like I'm always quoting Michael Madsen on his podcast because we're always talking about someone that's deranged and off hinged. And again, he does the dance number just like Madsen in Reservoir Dogs, but he does that really well.
2: Yeah, I love a villain that has a code that's very appealing to me. Like somebody who might be a bad guy, but might be against cursing, or, you know, kind of along the lines of the mayor in Buffy the Vampire Slayer season three, uh, John Wilkins the Third. You know, he's a guy that is killing teenage girls but he is also somebody that reminds you to wash your hands and not get dirt caught under your fingernails and i've always been really drawn to villains like that that are kind of polite as, as menacing as they are and i feel like uh debon is just is really my bread and butter when it comes to bad guys
1: yeah because he's the whole time just looking at talal saying just cooperate and you're gonna get through this and everything's gonna be fine Yes, I'm going to bring your wife into the scenario. Yes, I'm going to bring your kid into the scenario. But if you behave, all of this is going to go over so nicely for you. And it's the way he can flip being mild-mannered and technically good-natured to Talal. And the way he's, let's just be friends. Don't worry about this. Straight face, smiling, happy. And then he's stabbing people and then he's shooting people and he flips that switch like, yeah. with such a nuclear reaction.
2: Yeah, because when people walk into the room that don't know what's going on, he turns on Mr. Nice Guy Act, and he is very cordial, and he's very professional, and he quickly convinces them that the prisoner is, you know, an insane person, and they just believe him because that's the guy behind bars. And they just assume, well, of course, the bad guy is the one that's behind bars, and the good guy's in the uniform, naturally. That's how this is supposed to go, right? And the way that he toys with them and toys with Talal, but then the one thing that draws him away from being the worst he could possibly be is that moment when he is about to make things so much worse. And Talal just says, a man wouldn't go against his word. And it like stops Devon in his tracks. It's like that code still applies to him as, as crazy as he is. There's still like something inside of him that has to adhere to these certain rules.
1: Which is even more psychotic, which is great because (laughs) it's like the next step of the psychotic breakdown or the psychotic mentality here because this is a person who is willing to do anything in this scenario and has shown he will stab you in the throat and then take the dagger and shove it through your ear into your brain and laugh as he's doing it. He will do that, but then he will stop because he goes, all right, like I have, I have a code. It's like, all right, this is just crazy. You, you've gone off there, off the left field, whatever you want to call it. It's, I, I it's a very well done arc.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm, honestly kicking myself right now for not making the Jim Carrey connection, Kaylin. that's so spot on because I like this movie. I think this movie is a lot of fun. I'm going to spoil the ending by being like, I recommend it. Everyone should go see it. It's on Netflix, so you have no excuse not to. But there is a scene in this film that is just like top of the year for me in terms of scenes that I see in a movie. And that's when DeBon realizes that all he has to do is hit redial on the phone to figure out you know, who Talal called. And he goes through this elaborate scientific deduction thing. And in the very end he goes, ah, science prevails. And it's the most Jim Carrey moment I think I've ever seen from an actor with the physicality, with the, like the big arms and the way he gets into it. And I was just like, oh, why hasn't somebody tapped into that before? Like why hasn't, you know, we've seen, yeah, we've seen cable guy and things like that, but we've never seen anybody be like, what if we took Jim Carrey and really, really, really made him, everything that people love about him in comedy made him a horror character. And I think that that's, I think they do a really good job with that. That's where they hit here.
2: Yeah. There's, you know, a very thin line between horror and comedy. And I think that's why they can overlap so well together sometimes. And I feel like this movie is a perfect example of just getting a character that if you didn't know about the things he does behind closed doors, you might actually like him. He's actually like a guy that you might get a beer with, but take that energy and turn it to 11 and give it a psychotic edge. And it's the most terrifying villain you could imagine.
1: And I mean, you know, that plays right into Ada's character, the other uh, officer deputy that is working at the station and is not in that room that we we are locked in with Devon. And Devon keeps calling her in and, and, you know, he is to her face schmoozing her. He to her face is winning her over with just suave charisma. He is playing right into her hand. He's complimenting her a little homemade inhaler holder and stuff like that. And he knows how to work those angles. He knows how to manipulate a person and win them over immediately. Then she leaves the room and he's calling her Miss Piggy and making derogatory remarks and stuff like that. So it is so good the way he's able... Again, I just keep going back to the flip switch. He is so good by turning it on and turning it off and just keeping you in that same unsettled sense of, I don't know where this is going to go. He's being very nice right now, but when is that going to change again?
2: Yeah, and I, I know this is a strange, uh, a bit of an off recommendation, but honestly, I was so happy when I checked out the new Sonic and saw Jim Carrey in that movie because it was such a return to form of his like early 90s comedy. And I was so delighted to see him that way again, even though I, I enjoy his dramatic work too. I was just like, oh, yay, he's back. It, it, was, very, it was very nice. So I, I almost want to say if you like this movie, go see Sonic. I, it, I was surprised. Uh, I, I really, I really dug it, and I was just, I was very happy to see, like,
1: definitely crazy. don't bring the kids to don't rattle the, rattle rattle the, the cage. cage. Yeah, leave the kids out of rattle the cage, but definitely see Sonic still too, though.
2: Yeah, t- you watch this
0: podcast brought to you by Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> now in theaters
2: everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm, I miss Jim Carrey.
1: I, I know, and I, again, you making that connection. I don't know how I didn't do that. Like, it, it is spot on. Yeah. It's perfect. It, that's perfect. exactly explaining his character the whole way.
0: Well, let me ask you guys about um kind of the way that storytelling and set design intersect in this because there it it has um it sounds a little maybe derivative to put it this way but it has that really good escape room logic to it right where like every item in that room has a purpose and a meaning you know from the smoke detectors to a faulty walkie-talkie to a coin in a drawer like everything in the film has a narrative purpose and I think part of the fun of Rattle the Cage is watching how all of those different pieces resurface in the final act and like how everything kind of combines um, to allow you know, uh, allow not the good guy to win but allow there to be a happy resolution for everybody who's an innocent, I'll put it that way. Um, what do you guys think of the way that, that they use items and the way they use set design in order to drive the story?
2: I would definitely like to point out, um, I mean I think there's a lot of foreshadowing in the film But one thing that I enjoyed when I rewatched this the other day was uh, when you first walk in, you know, when you're first in the room and Debon walks into the room uh, for the first time, the sheriff is sleeping on the job and he's got his hat over his eyes. And then, you know, after the sheriff is out of the picture and Debon is in there with Yasa like... It was winning her over and, and swooning over her and he's getting her to dance with him. He takes her hat and puts it over her eyes. And so it's almost like it goes from a guy, you know, sleeping on the job to a woman asleep at the wheel and both of them just not being privy to what's around them because they're just not paying attention. And
1: again, you don't know what he's going to do because he's already killed the one person from mm-hmm. that scenario. So and again, you, you connect the characters now and you say, okay, this is another innocent who's about to get offed. And, you know, maybe she does and maybe she doesn't in that scenario. We'll get into spoilers, I'm sure, briefly. But, yeah, it's a great way of using visual cues to make you remember something that was horrible and then have that come up and go, wait, is that going to happen again? And then the tension starts to build. And then all of a sudden, he has the gun. And then all of a sudden, we're in another scenario where, okay, there could be a dead body here, but is he going to go through with it? It's a very smart way to do that. And it's almost like... The room is so barren and there's not much there that can help anyone or hurt anyone in a way that everything has to have importance. So I think it was almost by necessity the fact that everything here has to be usable. Everything, it's like a video game, it's kind of everything has to have a purpose and you know it's got to be clickable or something like that. So the way they went about it was very smart, I will say. The, the escape room logic is a good way of describing it because they need every piece of the puzzle here, because there's not m- many pieces, honestly, to put together.
0: But we've all seen films like this, right, where they're just so casual or, like, so un- not, I don't want to go as far as to say thoughtless, but not as intentional as they could be with the way that they use this set. I was struck with this, just how many different ways they were able to, like, dip back into the the various objects in the room, which, you know, we talk about this as, as being a really funny film, and we talk about this as being a, a you know, a talented film. The visuals are great and the performances are great, but it takes what could be on paper, a pretty boring story. And by allowing there to be a lot more, again, to your point earlier, Matt, like a lot less about two talking heads and a lot more about engaging and interacting with the objects around them. It makes it a lot more fun. Like I was, I, I knew I was into this movie after that opening shot, but there were so many times where I'm like, oh, that's better, than, like, that's better than I thought it could be, which sounds like an insult, but isn't. Every time they did something, I was like, oh, that's better than I thought it was going to be.
1: Because I think we're just trained to think that. Like this thing, we're all trained to expect a certain level of quality from a film of this nature again, because it's easy to do, minimal characters, minimal location work. It, it's a safe route for most starting out filmmakers. So I think when someone knocks it out of the park, it's that much more noticeable.
2: Yeah, I think it's also just been done so well, so many times already. Uh, You -hmm. know, I kept seeing this film being described in uh, like the synopsis at Fantastic Fest and in reviews and uh, and and, uh, articles online that I'd seen about the film. I kept seeing it being referred to as like a neo noir from the '80s, and honestly, when I was watching it, I felt more like it was a western. I kept thinking of Rio Bravo and almost like, an ant- like a reverse Rio Bravo instead of a guy inside that people are trying to bring out. It's a guy stuck in a jail that's trying to get out. And uh, I, thought, I, I thought that was such an interesting way to handle the film, too, because if you notice, like speaking of production design and, and camera movements, uh, there's that fluid tracking shot when they go through the bars of the window out into the street and up into the sky and have a bird's-eye view looking down. And it not only shows like how isolated that character is in that moment. He's completely without hope because he's stuck in this jail, and there's this man in there that wants to kill him, and there's nobody around that will help him or believe him. Because also, keep in mind that he's a recovering alcoholic, so nobody has any you know faith in him or what he has to say anyway. But it was a shot that uh, made me think of a shot in High Noon, where they go bird's eye view into the sky showing how isolated this character is, this lone good man surrounded by all these bad guys that are coming to get him and nobody in the town will help him. And uh, if I want to take it one step further and be that person, I would say that that makes so much sense on so many levels because one, high noon, is the first Western that really played with the rules and changed things up as to what a Western could be. And it made John Wayne so angry that he made Rio Bravo to say, no, this is how Westerns are. This is how they're supposed to be. And then we've got Talal in the jail, who was a very John McClane character a la Die Hard, right? He's got the hero, wrong place, wrong time, now he's got to deal with the bad guys. Well, in Die Hard, Hans Gruber keeps calling him cowboy and at one point says you're like a real John Wayne and he's like, no, it's Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper is the star of High Noon. John Wayne is the star of Rio Bravo.
1: I feel like it just got like black mirrored. I, I, like, I don't even know what's going on right now. <laughs> no, it, it, and even going further on the cowboy stuff and the, and the Western stuff, it is itself is just a duel of wits. I mean, these are two gunslingers and their bullets are basically their intelligence and it's a back and forth and it's perfect cause they each, you know, one person takes a shot, they return fire. And it's just so fun to watch that kind of dynamic play out. And I, I do think there's absolutely the elements that you were just talking about right there.
0: I want to, um, I want to wrap in a minute uh, by talking about the release of this film. Cause kind of hinted at that a little bit, but Donato, I know you usually have a couple of questions that um, we don't, always have time for and then we kind of have to tack them on at the end so i want to give you a chance like what are some of the notes that you had that you wanted uh, to talk about I, don't, here? I
1: mean i don't really have anything that we haven't mentioned right now um Ooh, we're doing good though. i mean okay so are we allowed to just do a quick like spoiler ending chat
0: let's spoil the shit out of it yes spoilers prevail. spoilers
1: god damn it yes they will prevail so if you would like to go into the film clean turn off the podcast right now and come back later if not... And take a shower. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Go take a shower. Yeah. Clean. Whatever. Um, so, the ending... I really like that twist. I, and... I mean, it is a twist, technically, right? Because they do not show the character who is revealed in the ending, that ends up being Devon's brother, until the third act, and into the third act, and... I think it's so clever that there's never a single reference to another person being in that room that is already so small. And again, it makes that room feel so much bigger because we think there's two cells and all you've done is add another cell with another man standing there and you've just like blown the lid on this entire, you know, mini universe that, that is Rattle the Cage. And it's such a simple thing to do and I was so taken aback by it. So I'm just wondering what your guys's reaction was to that reveal and how that hit you in that way. And if you, you know, if you think it's a strong reveal, even,
0: you know, I, I like the ending a lot. Um, and I liked it kind of one for the obvious reason that it's has this nice family parallel between the two characters, right? That like everything that Talal's doing, he's doing to try and reunite first reunite and then save um, his wife and his child. And in the very end, we learn that Daban is doing everything that he's doing one, because he's having fun, and two, because he's trying to you know, set up this opportunity to save his brother from going to jail and actually being sentenced to death. Um, so all the spoilers, there you go, you got everything that you need. But I think, it, it, like you said, it's, it's also interesting from a visual element, because uh, it adds to the space, and it also sets up that kind of like, the. it breaks the parallel that's been put throughout the whole film. A lot of the shots in the movie are, you know, I, one of the iconic shots to me is the one where they're on both sets. Both Debon and Talal are on two sets of the bars. Uh, Debon has given Talal a knife, and so you see the two of them lined up on either side with the bars intersecting in the middle of the screen. You know, Debon has a gun, Talal has a knife, and it's kind of like, well, are you going to go for it? Are you going to take your shot or not? Um, but it really introduces that, that the gun again with the, this third character who has the opportunity to pull the trigger, because it's been the battle of the wills that you've talked about, Matt, You know, does one of them have the fortitude in order to beat the other one? But then it introduces this X factor. And a lot of what happens at the end is actually taken out of both characters' hands, which is kind of a a fun way to resolve these two characters in the, the fight that they're having.
2: Yeah, this is a real path of redemption for Talal. And I think even more so than he realizes at the beginning of the movie, because I think at first he's thinking in his mind, well, I've been sober for over a year, so now I can just come back to my wife and my child and they should just accept me and we should move on as a family. And that's not really taking their feelings into account. It's almost a selfish need because it's just him saying, well, of course they should come back to me. This is what I want. This is what I deserve. Not thinking about the damage that's already been inflicted and the fact that his wife has moved on. But it's not until the moment when his wife comes into the jail and he fibs to her about why he called her, that he's really starting to act in her best interests. And it's almost because of this evil man being a catalyst that he was finally able to take that final step and be the man that his wife knew he could be. So it's a really interesting arc for his character, especially because he does not physically go very far, but intellectually and emotionally, I think he makes such a grand leap from where he was at the beginning to where he is at the end.
1: So here's one of my other random questions. So still playing in that third act and especially in the finale, what was your reaction when the child Shabab comes into the scene? Because I will admit I had a beat where I'm like, all right, wait, are we really going to throw him in the middle of this now? Like we've gotten to the final conclusion. We've gotten to the end of the film. We know it's about to wrap up and climax. And I don't know if it was hundred percent necessary. Cause my first thought is like, what the hell is this kid even doing here? Like, come on, like, I know the wife brought the kid. That was one of the techniques that Debon uses to keep uh, Talal in line, having the wife there and just being like, you better behave. Otherwise the wife is going to get it. But I thought putting Shabab, the child in there at the end was a little bit of overkill and like something that we could have wrapped this up, just having it be about the adults themselves. Um, but as you said, it is also a, a uh, path to redemption. So it does give Talal the chance to prove to his family that he has learned in his own way. But yeah, again, I'm wondering what you guys, uh, what your reaction was when little Shabab runs into the scene and you go, can't get the fuck out. No, no, don't.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was definitely very afraid for him. But I, I do think it plays into that character arc, especially because every, like, I think it happens once or twice earlier in the film where Talal wakes up either from sleeping or from being knocked out by Tavon. And he has these moments, these very like Terrence Malicky images of his wife and son. And at first, like the first time I saw it, I remember like assuming initially that they had died and that he was remembering them because that's what Terrence Malick would have done. But it's, uh, you know, the, the dead wife and the memories and the all white linen and things are flowing in the breeze and she's saying, I love you, but... Yeah, uh, it turns out that it was more of a foreshadowing to his fate and the last thing that he was going to see. And like now he's, if you want to take it a step further and talk about the religious symbolism of it, perhaps you know maybe he's finally earned his way into whatever kingdom he believes in because he's finally completed his path and become the a real dependable, good natured, good hearted man.
0: I will say my. Um thought on the child is it's funny to me because it's one of those things where you think about it from an audience perspective or a writer perspective right the whole film we've been talking about the child and the wife and we see the wife but we don't see the child so if we're going to have this amazing catharsis that calen so accurately described accurately describes you know from an audience perspective like oh you got to see the kid right like you got to see both of them you got to have that reunion at the very end you're like yeah we got to put that in on the other on the other hand, like I, I get that, but at the same time, if you're working to make sure that you're making the implicit explicit for the sake of your audience, you also killed her fiance and like threw him in the bathroom, and the movie ends with her new fiance like dead, and she's like, "I love you," and I'm like, "I have questions," and that's that's I guess that's like that's fine, but it's funny where they go out of their way to make sure you you get this on screen resolution that you're looking for, and leave what to me would be a more traumatizing moment um, of not resolution. Uh, off screen so that you don't have to deal with it I appreciate why they did it but I really wanted that I wanted a credit sequence where they have to open the bathroom door because I'm apparently just a mean person
1: no I <laughs> agree I mean 100% her life is irreconcilably fucked and they forever, do, yeah, fucked forever. forever. <laughs> she's just lost both men in her life that she has loved and still loved and they just don't address it, it you only get it from the one side I agree I, I, that stuck in my mind too it's like What about those bodies in the bathroom over there? We're just not going to address that. We're just going to end the movie now. Okay, cool. Got
2: it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's his first movie, and it's the uh, the first genre movie to come out of the area. So there's things that are gonna, there's gonna be some hiccups. You know, they're gonna have to to work some things out.
1: Can't all be perfect on <laughs> the first. I'm not try. saying it's the wrong choice. <laughs> it's not. It's
0: not the wrong choice for this movie. But I mean, I felt I felt something missing there. at the end. That's all I'm saying.
2: Yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. I I do think that's uh, something they just kind of chose to omit to give you the happy ending, mm-hmm. and that is something that. I think a lot of older horror films might be guilty of. from time to time. They just choose to focus Mm -hmm. on the one person that survived and, oh, well, she's so lucky. Yeah, but all of her friends are dead now, and so maybe... She's not going to recover that well. <laughs> and even
1: just in horror movies that we have seen that have done this exact same thing where like the wife shows up with the new boy or like a girl shows up with a new boyfriend and the new boyfriend is like the first one to die. And she ends up back with her ex-boyfriend and like we're supposed to be like, oh, everything's fine now. But like boyfriend number two over there is like has been a corpse for 40 minutes. Like that's not okay. Like
2: that's an extremely traumatic experience yeah. to like find a dead body, let alone a person that you love. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, to the film's credit, she doesn't know at this point. Yeah. That's obviously where I'm going, like, or at least where I'm rationalizing it. Yeah. She hasn't opened that door. She doesn't know what is behind door number one, unfortunately. And it is not a prize that she wants to take
2: home. And it's Talal's story. It's, Mm -hmm. like, his journey. So I guess you could argue that it's more about his arc and less about the people around him. Poor. Oh, sure.
0: Yeah. 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 I will say that, you know, what makes you grow up to be somebody like Debon, I don't know, maybe watching your father bleed out in front of you after he set somebody else on fire. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying caught in a vicious cycle right now. That little kid is going to grow up to torment some other guy in some other jail cell. There's no getting away from it.
2: I would also like to point out that I was uh, very amused by DeBon's brother flinging the gun on the ground and running away. It was very Humphrey Bogart in big sleep, just touching all of the evidence in the room. And like, there's a dead body right there and he's touching the murder weapon and picking up glasses and moving things around. And you're like, no, man, just get out of there. The cops are coming. Just go. <laughs> They might be out of cops, honestly. Well,
1: that's actually true. Yeah, they are in the middle of nowhere. And, well, they've got Ada or whatever Miss Piggy's name was.
0: <laughs> well, she wanted to be a, uh, a graphic designer, right? This she is wanted true. to work in, in IT. so She did print, print
1: out, out one bathroom. damn bath, one damn hell of a bathroom sign. And
0: the funny thing is, is I've seen a lot of stuff on Etsy that suggests that would go for a lot of money.
1: What? <laughs> interesting
0: that's like no like like um like what's the word retro retro printer art is a thing
1: and that's why Um, this world is terrible
0: (laughs) last question for both of you um in our rattle the cage podcast sometimes we ask does this movie deserve to be forgotten blah 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 i think we all agree that this is fun and we need to keep it so let me ask the better question why do you think this movie failed to, A, get as many reviews as it should have in order to meet our incredibly low barrier? It's not like we're, you know, we're not, we're not making it hard for folks here. Five reviews is in a ton of reviews. Why do you think it didn't get um, reviewed enough? Why do you think it didn't resonate enough? And what, made, what makes it, I th- do you think, something that's been a bit forgotten by genre fans in particular?
2: I think partially, uh, some people are put off by foreign films. Some people still are not willing to watch a movie that has subtitles. I mean, there's a reason why Bong Joon-ho mentioned in his Golden Globe speech that once you get over the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, the world of cinema will open up to you because there's so many people that are still not wanting to sit through these really great films. They're missing out on so many great films by not engaging in uh, in foreign films. And also, I, I think, sadly... Possibly because this is a movie that comes out of the Middle East and people are quick to stereotype and quick to make assumptions about something that might be violent coming from a place that they don't know a lot about, but they've made assumptions, they've had friends that have made assumptions and have just accepted a certain stereotype for a certain area of the world that we should learn more about before we make certain judgments, which I think is a big theme in this movie, is not judging a book by its cover. You know, the fact that the good guy is behind bars and the bad guy has the uniform on, I think is a huge lesson that you can take away from this movie and learning to dig deeper into a circumstance before you make, you know, knee-jerk reactions. And if more people would seek this out that would make me very happy it's on netflix right now it's very easy to watch and i would highly recommend it
1: so here's i
2: have nothing to add to
1: that (laughs) you're like and close (laughs) um i mean i i have nothing to add to it but to put my two cents i'm gonna
0: keep talking anyways because
1: i love talking into microphones (laughs) um looking at the rotten tomatoes page it has one review The only review actually came from the United Arab Arab Emirates, so it was even an international review. No one in America posted one, which is the thing I always bring up. It's Fantastic Fest, and I mean, we know the people at Fantastic Fest. We know all of us, and we know how many people write these reviews about films they see there, and this wasn't even a situation where it was like 2007 or like 2008 where, yeah, the genre community wasn't represented well on Rotten Tomatoes, so there was that lack of representation from our circles. But, I mean, if we're still talking about a film that was, you know, let's say it played there in 2015, it's only five years ago, I still think I'm shocked that it doesn't have any festival reviews out there. That, that actually shocks the hell out of me because using a comparison point that's totally random, but there's a Thai movie called The Pool that played there this year, and it's about a man who gets stuck in an empty Olympic-sized swimming pool with a crocodile, and that has nine reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and is disqualified from this fucking podcast. And I'm so mad about it because I love it. And I am one of those reviews. But to be fair, I was there for Rattle the Cage. I was there the year it played if it did only play in 2015. And I didn't make an attempt to see it. I didn't review it. I didn't do anything like that. So I guess it's trying to figure out, you know, when these films play, if it was an early morning spot. I didn't go see it. I can tell you that because my day at Fantastic Fest doesn't start until about one o'clock. Um, and it's unfortunately the films that get buzz and that get the right PR and that get us hooked and make us need to see it at a festival versus the ones that unfortunately kind of get forgotten and lost in the shuffle. Cause there are a lot of movies at fantastic fest and festivals in general. I mean, going to Fantasia or any of these things, it becomes overwhelming. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of us critics and we sit there going, well, which do I have to review here? Do I have to review the one that's a first-time effort from the United Emirates? Or do I have to review the one from the director that people know that might or might not be good, but it'll do better traffic? And I hate that that's a thing because I would love to do everything. And we're all human, we can't. So why did this get forgotten? I think it's a lot of those reasons. And it's a lot of those things of, well, then it doesn't come out of the fest with any reviews. So distributors aren't going to jump all over it. It's an unfortunate cycle, but it's one that we keep finding and that's the reason why we have this podcast is because we're so taken aback by this and going, there are so many good movies out there that just don't get the Rotten Tomatoes push and nobody sees them. So yeah, I think that's where, uh, that's where Rattle of the Cage kind of lands there.
2: Yeah, I really I would love for this guy to get more attention because I was lucky enough to attend one of Fantastic Fest's Rolling Road shows when I was there that year. And I happened to, like, be sat, or I guess we we could sit where we wanted to, but me and my friend chose a table, like, kind of near the back to watch uh, Kern Kusama's The Invitation outside, and it was this really lovely evening. We had, like, a candlelight dinner. They fed us, like, the same food that they were eating on screen, and Kusama came up and did a QA. and a but they sat, uh, or I I sat at this table near the back with my buddy, and then uh, Majid Al-Ansari actually, like, sat with us, because he just, like, was there by himself, and he just, like, chose that table, and we just started up a conversation and then I realized who he was and I was like, Oh, I really loved your film. I'm so excited that you're here. And he was such a lovely person and he was so kind and we gushed over the invitation together. And I was just like really excited to see where he went from there.
1: And unfortunately that answer is not much because, you know, looking at his IMDB, he hasn't directed anything. He hasn't written anything. He's just kind of produced And which is totally fine, obviously. And yeah, obviously, if he's doing it overseas, it's not Hollywood. They don't have like we were all saying before, they don't have that infrastructure for their Hollywood down yet. So, yeah, it's it's unfortunate he hasn't done anything since then. And I just do laugh because, again, his picture right on the front is him at Fantastic Fest. So it's like that was his moment and he deserves way more moments from that. You know, it's it's an unfortunate thing.
2: Well, I'm so glad you guys have this podcast because hopefully everybody will listen to this episode and everybody will watch this movie and this guy will explode and be directing Marvel movies.
1: Absolutely. The resurgence for the (laughs) rattle the cage comeuppance.
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. My last thought on that is based on everything that Kalen said, based on everything that Matt said, one rule to live by. If you don't have to review anything and you're trying to choose what to watch, go with something that doesn't have distribution. The Netflix releases, the things that you know are going to be hitting on a certain day and date, you will have an opportunity to see those early. They will do press screenings or they will hit the platform and you'll be able to watch it. So, you know, missing out on something like Rattle the Cage with the opportunity to share that moment with the director in the room at something like Fantastic Fest, it's probably better than watching another movie, which is fine, maybe even something you enjoyed, but is not, you know, we're not talking about it on podcasts five years later like we are today. So go see stuff that doesn't already have distribution lined up if you can, it's
1: not worth the hot take tweet. Your, <laughs> your, whatever many likes and retweets are not worth skipping out on something like this that you may never see again because, yes, I unfortunately get dragged into the Netflix stuff because I have to write about it. And half the time I sit there going, well, this sucks. I hate this. And I have to sit here and finish this. And there's 10 other titles I, I could be seeing in this slot. So, agreed on that. If you don't have to review something, if you're not on a schedule or a script that is dictated by an editor or something, by all means, please, God, see something that you wouldn't normally see, and especially a fantastic post.
2: Definitely. If you have three free hours, just go check out something random.
1: Do the gamble. Just pick something you don't know. Just look at the titles and go, that sounds crazy.
0: Invariably, those are the movies I like the best. All right. Uh, Kaylin, if people want to follow your work, if they want to see what's going on with you or see, you know, get a heads up when new pieces of yours are being published, what is your social media of choice? What's the best way to follow you?
2: Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Kaelin Gorgon. Uh, same at Kaylin Gorgon for Instagram. So either way, you want to check out my stuff. I, I post a lot of my articles on Twitter. So hopefully, we can be friends.
0: Matt, how do we uh, how do we learn whatever it is that you're doing when you do whatever you do?
1: I don't know what I'm doing whenever I'm doing it anyway so you'll never learn because I haven't learned yet but if you would like to follow along and see what the hell I am doing you can follow me at DonatoBomb on Letterboxd Instagram and Twitter you can also find my writing at places such as Slash Film blade Disgusting uh, I'm actually going to be part of a new site or at this point if, we're, if this goes up in April which I assume it will I'm talking to you in the future or past I don't know what, what's going on right now time is time is a flat circle um, I have a site called Haw Street hawk Creek horror that's coming into fruition now which is going to be a team of about four or five of us uh driving out articles that are basically passion projects at this point that have no rhyme or reason but just things we want to write about so i'm particularly excited to see what happens there and uh my article from last month at this point is about the reds so i'm very uh very happy to see that my personal brand is now flourishing just as much as you thought it would (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm, nice. You can't yeah. see it, but I'm shaking my head. Yeah, Kaylin
1: so, yeah. is shaking her head aggressively. Um, I it, we haven't
0: learned anything else over the last few weeks. It's when we're recording this episode. It's it's a good thing to support independent horror publications or independent film publications as a whole. Um, all right. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Lab Splice L A B S P L I C E. Um, sometimes I post photos of my dog. I also write, but my my analytics say. The dog stuff is more interesting to you. So I'll probably throw more of that content out your way. And I just want to say thank you so much, Kaelin, for first of all, joining us on the podcast, but really second of all, picking, picking a movie that was a lot of fun and one I never, for all the reasons we've discussed probably would have gotten around to watching on my own. So I sometimes feel like Donato and I just basically run this podcast so that people will force us to watch really good movies. We won't make time for, and when it's something like Rattle the cage, it's succeeding. I know it's working.
2: Oh, thank you for saying such kind words and thank you for watching the movie and for having me on. I had so much fun talking about this.
0: Yay. Yay. Happy people. (laughs) Take us out every time.
1: Demon wind. There it is. More head shaking. (laughs)